available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Hello and welcome from me, Peter Walters, to this week's edition of Outlook, being recorded on Wednesday the 11th of October 2023. In this edition, we'll be hearing about, well, plenty of history, really. Uh, we're investigating uh, Pax's Arboretum, some of the people buried there, because of course it's also known as London Road Cemetery. Uh, we'll be looking at the way we were in Arlston and the Black Country Museum and the Dambusters Raid plus Maureen Lippmann and one or two other interesting characters. And of course there's the usual items of news from the Resource Centre Sport and your post bag. Uh, but we start with a summary of the past week's local news, myself and Elaine. Outlook News. Council bosses have pledged to continue Coventry's bin collection service amid a new strike threat. The City Council has issued the statement in the wake of an announcement from the Union Unite. Unite has confirmed that it will ballot 55 refuse workers for strike action and action short of a strike until Tuesday, October the 24th, amid claims of significant cuts to the workers' terms and conditions. These claims have been denied by the local authority. In a statement following Unite's announcement, the Council said that their position is not an attack on workers, as claimed by the Union. It went on to reassure residents that a bin collection service would continue if strike action is agreed. A Council spokesperson said, We are disappointed that Unite has decided to ballot refuse workers for strike action. For a number of months we have been talking to all trade unions to try and collectively agree a position to modernise working practices. However, despite our best efforts, we have not been able to get to a position all three trade unions can agree on. We will need to await the ballot result, but we want to reassure residents that we will do all we can to continue to provide the service. Should members vote for strike action, they will join more than 40 HGV refuse lorry drivers employed by the council who have already voted to stage walkouts. As previously reported, Coventry City Council has said that it's been hit by a perfect storm of financial problems. Councillor Richard Brown has warned the council could have to effectively declare bankruptcy next year. It would mean limits on council services, possible sales of assets, and could see local taxes hiked even higher to raise funds. Known as a Section 114 notice, something that used to be rare but has been taken by seven English councils since 2020, usually associated with bad investments or accounting errors. But Labour Councillor Brown linked the council's current financial woes to the impact of inflation, the rising demand for services and a lack of government funding to address this. Other councils are in the same position and some could have to declare bankruptcy earlier, he said. In an interview with the local democracy reporting service, Councillor Brown said the council will have an overspend this year of £12 million, which will be really stubborn to shift. He told of dramatically rising social care costs, which now take up 70% of the council's budget, up from 40% back in 2010. Some children's residential placements now cost £8,000 a week, 
up 70% from 2021-22 levels. Housing and homelessness demand has also surged, linked to a rise in mortgage costs, he said. It means the council was supporting a 1,000 people in temporary accommodation last month, compared to 624 at the end of last year. Last September's inflation bonfire, when rates hit double digits and later climbed to a 41-year high, is still hitting the council, he added. But the government's settlement with, with councils doesn't appear likely to adjust for these pressures, he said. Last year the government gave us a 9 or 10% increase, but this year they're saying only 3%. Asked how much Coventry needs, mm-hmm. Councillor Brown said they want funding to be on the same level as other authorities. The council gets almost £100 less per head than the average across English councils, according to Councillor Brown. What we're saying is the thing the government could do straight away is level up, he said. Raise the floor for us. That would probably give us about another £17 million to bring us up with the national average, which we think is fair. This year, the council will likely need to use reserves to plug its gap, a move that Councillor Brown and others have stressed is not sustainable in the long term. Following on from that last article, Coventry City Council's opposition leader has criticised the authority's spending decisions after the news it could effectively go bust next year without the extra funding. Councillor Gary Ridley criticised decisions worth millions made over Coombe Abbey, Tom White Waste, Birmingham Airport and the City of Culture as dubious. But he also said inflationary pressures are causing many of the wider problems UK councils are facing right now. And the Conservative group leader called for a change to how councils are funded so that they can plan more easily for the future. Councillor Ridley said, We've seen reckless spending from Labour locally, with subsidies for Coombe Abbey, Tom White Waste, Birmingham Airport and the City of Culture. It's also clear that they are now faced with a massive bill for equal pay claims as a hangover from their failed deal with the unions on bin strikes. However, it's clear there's a big problem in local government right now, which is largely driven by inflationary pressures. The one thing government should do is to move to a multi-year financial settlement. This would give local authorities greater flexibility to respond to sudden shocks and to plan further into the future. As a member of the Local Government Association, I have been making that case, along with other leaders, for some time now. Coombe Abbey Hotel and Tom White Waste were bought by the Council for millions of pounds in 2017 and 2020. The sites have also had significant loans, 5.8 million to Coombe Abbey as of 2021 and 22 million for a new recycling plant to Tom White Waste last year. In 2021 the council made an emergency loan of 5.7 million to Birmingham Airport as part of a 32.8 million pound package from Midlands councils that have shares there. And last October, they loaned a million to the City of Culture Trust, a figure that had to be written off when the trust collapsed in February. 
An expert from Coventry University has shared the best ways to try and combat a new strain of COVID-19. Cases of pyrola are said to be rising sharply in the UK. Experts have said the highly mutated strain is becoming the most dominant in the country. Data shows that there have been almost 98,000 new cases of COVID-19 as of October the 4th. Dr Philip Gould, molecular virologist at Coventry University, has shared some insight into the new variant of COVID-19. He's also revealed how people can fight off the infection as well as boost their immunity. Dr Gould said, viruses like COVID will infect people who will then build up immunity, but they can also build up that immunity by being vaccinated, which stimulates our immune system and mimics that infection. But once we've built up this immunity, the virus will then mutate and change. It's therefore not surprising that new variants will constantly appear. So at any period of the year, you could get new variants appearing. Our immunity does fade over a period of time and a new variant will mean our immune system is less capable of preventing that viral infection. But the important thing is that the majority of people who have been vaccinated or have been infected will have some immunity, which means it's significantly less likely that they would have a severe illness. Dr Gould said there's no obvious difference in the symptoms of parola when compared with previous strains of COVID-19. He said, if you've been affected previously, the symptoms are going to be less severe. The levels of infection are low. Unfortunately, we've not got all of the other types of respiratory diseases circulating as much. Dr Gould said that different people will suffer differently and provided several tips on how to fight off the new strain. He said, you should try and be as healthy as possible. Boost your immune system, take vitamins and boost your diet. A good diet is really important because the biggest line of defence is your natural immunity and that is boosted by what's in your diet as well as your levels of vitamin C. It's good if you're healthy because even if you did become infected, your recovery period would be significantly lower. Urgent checks are being made of every high-rise housing block in Coventry for crumbling concrete. Citizen has confirmed that surveys for reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete known as RAC are being undertaken on all blocks of flats across the city. It is said that if any RAC is found during the checks, which are being undertaken by an outside company, then the required works will be undertaken and support will be given to all affected customers. The housing provider has said that they have already checked the files of their mid to smaller properties which also house council tenants across the city and there are no historical links to RAC. But these checks will continue to be made. It comes after the regulator of social housing instruction to landlords to investigate all of their properties. Bridget Gilfoyle, Director of Asset Management at Citizen said, We have appointed Michael Dyson Associates who are carrying out a report and they will present their findings back to us. We are also checking the files of our low and medium high-rise blocks and communal buildings to check whether RAC is present. To date, we have not found RAC in any of our surveys and we don't have any historical issues linked to it. Therefore, we do not have any immediate concerns in relation to RAC in our buildings. 
Once we have all the information from Michael Dyson Associates, and if RAC is found to be present, we will create a schedule of required works and provide support to all our customers. Coventry City Council previously said that checks undertaken at all of the city's schools had revealed no evidence of RAC within buildings. Ricky Sunak's U-turn on HS2 has done little for the popularity of the contentious rail scheme. In fact, residents were unanimously critical of the White Elephant Scheme even before the Prime Minister confirmed plans to scrap Phase 2 in its entirety. In addition to the Birmingham to Manchester link, the West Midlands to East Midlands Parkway leg faces cuts, although there remains uncertainty about that. But it's all systems go for Phase 1, which will link London Euston with several terminals in the West Midlands, including one in Solihull, also known as Birmingham Interchange, and one at Birmingham Curzon Street Railway Station. Phase 1 runs right through the heart of Warwickshire and passes to the south and west of Coventry as it makes its way to Birmingham Interchange. At its nearest point, the line will travel around 200 metres from the city limits, close to where the A429 meets Cryfield Grange Road. New pictures of the building work taking place at the site have sparked a fresh round of criticism of the project. Among the numerous comments, one said, Coventry and Warwickshire decimated by this horror show, and we've suffered the scars for brummy self-interest, a railway with no redeeming features, overpriced, over budget, with tickets nobody will be able to afford. Another reasoned, waste of public money. Surely the NHS could have done with that, what they've done to the countryside is outrageous. The government claims the benefits of Phase 1 far outweigh the negatives associated with the build and operation of the scheme, such as the relentless roadworks, noise and air pollution, and harm to natural habitats. It points to the thousands of jobs so far created by the project, with a large number of apprenticeships, as well as increased capacity reduced congestion and quicker trains, the government says the line will drive innovation, support local businesses and deliver long-term environmental gains. What's your opinion? Tell us in part. Post back. A new 130-bed student block will be built by the River Sherbourne in Coventry after a vote by councillors. The scheme went to the Council's planning committee after locals and community groups objected on the grounds that it would be too tall. But before work starts, details of the plans will be checked by Council officers and the committee chair after locals and councillors raised fire safety concerns. Councillors heard a range of concerns from the owners of neighbouring Willowbank Mews who were represented by a speaker. A representative for the applicant, Summer Investments, said at the meeting last Thursday that separation distances are in line with design guidelines and pointed out the scheme that had been amended to take into account all previous reasons for refusal. They claimed it would deliver significant benefits, including cleansing a contaminated site, a biodiversity net gain of 150%, and sustainability considerations. Summer investments will continue to work with the local residents, including Lettuce Lettings next door, with whom we've had a number of meetings and have specifically amended the design already to address all of the points that they have raised, they said.
An officer later added fire statements are mostly advisory and these matters are covered by building regulations, not planning policies. The requirements for separation rely on the materials of the building. A fire statement with the application also said the latest recommendations of building regulations on fire standards would be applied in full. And while debating the scheme, a councillor pointed out that in recent weeks student blocks had come back to the council asking for a different use. What guarantees have we got, having built this development, it will not turn into something else? A council planning officer said the use by students would be in place under a section 106 and the developers would have to apply later for any permission to change it. On the need for student accommodation, another officer told the meeting, we're in the process of commissioning a study to look at that again. But our ongoing discussions with both universities indicate continued growth and continued need for more student accommodation. Councillors voted the plans through after agreeing elements of the scheme, including sprinklers and separation distance, would be checked by officers and consulted on with the committee's chair before work starts. Fraser's Group PLC has submitted plans for a huge state-of-the-art global headquarters near Coventry that could create 7,500 jobs and bring £300 million into the regional economy. The retail giant owned by Mike Ashley has lodged plans for a massive campus incorporating cutting-edge logistics, offices, R&D, retail, a hotel and leisure facilities that put sustainability at the forefront. Fraser's Group, which bought Coventry Building Society Arena last year after Wasps RSC went bust, want the site at Anstey, five miles from Coventry City Centre, to feature a gym and bookable courts and pitches that will be open to the public. The ambitious plans have been designed by world-leading architects Grimshaw, the firm behind the Eden Project, London's XL Phase 2 and the Lloyds Banking Group headquarters. A spokesperson for Fraser's group said, We've worked closely with local partners to develop proposals for a global headquarters campus at Anstey. The application will be considered by Rugby Borough Council in the coming months. Fraser's group has a diverse portfolio of sports, lifestyle and luxury business, including Sports Direct, Flannels, Fraser's, USC and Everlast. Mr Ashley, former owner of Newcastle United Football Club, paid in the region of £17 million for the three businesses that ran the CBS arena after each of them were placed into administration last year. Drug dealers, addicts and youths have been banned from causing trouble in and around Coventry City Centre. The St Michael's Neighbourhood Policing Team has revealed that officers dished out a total of 32 community protection notices last month. They say that they have been used to target aggressive beggars and other troublemakers causing antisocial behaviour in residential areas. They are also designed to combat suspected drug dealers and users around Charterhouse Park and youths congregating and causing antisocial behaviour around Millennium Place. Now that the CPNs have been issued, 
Any of the 32 caught causing trouble or antisocial behaviour face arrest and legal action. Inspector Simon Finney from the St Michael's team explained that they will help make the area better for residents and visitors alike. The CPN is a really valuable tool for local officers when they are dealing with people whose behaviour is having a negative effect on the local community, Inspector Finney said. CPNs mean we can deal with the issues that we know really affect our communities, as well as people visiting the city centre. Using them means we have control over who is coming to the area and anyone looking to create significant disruption. We can stop them engaging in criminal and antisocial activity. The notices are a significant deterrent and if they are breached, they give us the power of arrest. Rubik's Cube fans will be flocking to Coventry this month as the UK Championship comes to the city. The country's fastest cube solvers will go head-to-head for the Rubik's UK Championship 2023, presented by the UK Cube Association. The event is the national championship for speed cubing in the UK. It will take place at Coventry Building Society Arena for the second year running, from October the 20th to the 22nd. The competition will see 500 competitors battle it out across 16 different events, including the standard 3x3x3 Rubik's Cube, as well as other sizes from 2x2 all the way up to 7x7. Those with the highest speed hands will take on challenges, including twisty puzzles like the Pyraminx, Megaminx, Clock, Skube and Square One. Some competitors will also try for the fastest time in challenges, such as completing the standard cube with one hand, and even blindfolded. All souls from the competition will be officially recognised by the World Cube Association, the global governing body. Competitors from over 25 nations will be present, but only those representing the United Kingdom will be eligible for the elusive champion title. James Alonso was just 13 when he became UK champion last year. He said, winning the UK championship last year was the craziest experience I've ever had. I'm just super excited to compete again this year. And regardless of who wins, the experience of sharing a huge venue with hundreds of competitors from across the globe is unmatched. With the world record holder, Yi Heng Wang of China, having an average time of just 4.48 seconds at the age of only nine, competitors in speed cubing have been getting younger and younger. In 2023, the average age for a UK competitor is just over 14, more than five years lower than when the UK held its first competition in 2008. The event this year is sponsored by the Rubik's brand, the iconic Rubik's Cube is one of the most influential toys in history, intriguing minds of all ages. And without Erno Rubik's invention almost 50 years ago, the world of speed cubing would not be where it is today. A new Aldi supermarket opened its doors at Central Six Retail Park last week. Paralympics GB gold and silver medalist Libby Clegg officially cut the ribbon at the new store last Thursday. She also gave out free bags of fresh fruit and vegetables from Aldi's Super 6 range to the first 30 customers in the queue. She then gave a special assembly for pupils at Earlston Primary School as part of the supermarket's initiative, Get Set to Eat Fresh. 
Store manager Joe Dell said, It's been a wonderful morning here at the opening of Aldi Coventry. It was lovely to welcome our new customers into store, and I look forward to meeting more of the community in the coming weeks. I'm also thrilled that we've been able to support Earlston Primary School through our partnership with Paralympics GB. Libby Clegg added, I've had a fantastic time opening the new Aldi store this morning. It was an honour to officially open it and welcome customers inside for the first time. It was then great to speak with the children at Earlston Primary School about the importance of eating healthily and how it can be fun to plan and prepare meals as a family. Hopefully, I've also managed to inspire the pupils to keep active and try different sports. The Aldi store is the latest addition to Central 6, which is also set to welcome a new Iceland food warehouse. A Coventry Weatherspoons has been named as one of the best places to have a pint in the UK. The City Arms right here in Earlston has been featured in the Camera Good Beer Guide 2024. The City Arms was selected following regular visits to check the quality of the real ales according to camera. Judges were said to have also taken into account the decor, customer service and the atmosphere of the popular pub on Earlston Street. Customers have echoed the thoughts of camera with one describing the local pub as the best. The City Arms has also achieved a four-star rating on Google Reviews. One regular said, It's a great pub in the centre of Earlston. It has a good selection of beers and loads of outside seating. A spokesman for camera said, The City Arms deserves its place in the Good Beer Guide 2024. It's our belief that if the licensee deserves an excellent pint of real ale then everything else in the pub, including customer service, quality of food and atmosphere, are likely to be of an equally high standard. Canadian rocker Brian Adams is heading back to Coventry. The Summer of 69 singer was the first musical act to perform in the indoor arena at Coventry Building Society Arena back in 2005, when it was known as the Rico. Now the 63-year-old is turning full circle, and returning to the venue next year as part of his global So Happy It Hurts tour. The Coventry date on Friday, May the 17th, will follow a run of three shows at the Royal Albert Hall and precede performances in Sheffield and Cardiff, where the UK leg of his tour will conclude on Sunday, May the 19th. Paul Michael, Managing Director at the CBS Arena, said... Brian Adams is renowned for his show-stopping live performances and is the perfect star to mark the return of concerts to our indoor arena. He has played a huge part in the history of this venue as he performed the first concert ever held at the arena back in 2005. To this day, we still have a bar named after Brian. It's set to be a sellout crowd, and we're looking forward to welcoming thousands of people to see a true legend of rock music perform here in Coventry. We're incredibly excited about the future of live events at our indoor arena, with more announcements coming soon. For those who may be interested, tickets will go on sale at 9am this Friday, the 13th, at www.eticketing.co.uk forward slash CBS Arena. Outlook News. 
Thanks to Elaine uh, for doing the news. Um, we're now going to move on to news from this week's news from the Resource Centre. Here's Hugh. Thank you very much. Well, hello, everybody. Um, I'm going to start off with some sad news. Um, Christine Williams, who uh, volunteered to uh, with the Braille group, and she led the Braille group, um, sadly died on uh, Saturday, uh, no, Sunday morning, I beg your pardon. Um, she had been ill for really quite a, a, a few months, um, complications arising from a brain tumour so it, and, and an operation that, that went a bit wrong. So we're, we're very sad to have lost Christine. Um, she was an absolutely uh, tireless teacher of Braille. Um, she loved that group so, so much. Um, her and Leslie had started it off, um, gosh, I suppose it's about four or five years ago now, and uh, the just went from absolute strength to strength so we're desperately desperately um, sad with this news um, the funeral for those who are interested is on the 23rd of um, October at St Mary Magdalene's Church in Lillington at 3.30 uh, we will be arranging um, a bit of transport, not on the buses, it'll be in people's cars uh, to go to that funeral um, if you're interested. So please do let uh, everybody know. Christine's death comes just, uh, well, a year and a very little bit after the uh, death of, her, uh, of Leslie uh, Mansfield, who started the group with her. And uh, you know, so you know, that, that group's taken really quite a, a heavy knock. So um, anyway, there we are. Um, a bit of sad news to start with. Right, so moving on, um, just a little bit of um, group news, really. Uh, the cooking group, normally this group is oversubscribed, but actually for the um, session that we're due to start um, uh, this week or, or next, we, we actually only have one person, um, and uh, we need three, really, for it to be uh, in any way uh, viable to run so if you fancy doing a six-week cooking course um, uh, uh, with Roop in the kitchen here on Thursday afternoons uh, please let us know and we will um, uh, get get you onto the group pretty much straight away we have uh, a, a number of people who are wanting to be on the group after Christmas and uh, they're already signed up so it's it's now or wait until later on next year um, now, I talked about the theatre trip uh, last week. Uh, we're going to see The Welkin um, by Lucy Haywood at the Criterion on the, well, I've said the 25th of October. That may have to change. That's a Wednesday. It may have to change to the, to the Tuesday, the 24th of October. The reason being, some of you will know that I'm a foster carer and we have a pretty important foster fostering meeting that's taking place on the Wednesday afternoon uh, and uh, I wouldn't be able to uh, take you down to the theatre for the touch tour but um, that may also be shifted and I'll find out in the next few days so we're aiming for the 25th it might be the 24th we've had about 7 or 8 people sign up already uh, the Welkin um Melkin means sky, apparently, in, mm. in Old English, and uh, it looks like a very good play. Um, I haven't got the details all to hand with me at the moment, but if you'd uh, like to know a bit more about it, do please give us a call. 
Give us a call for any reason, actually. 024-7671-7522, and we'll do what we can to help. Um, so that, that theatre trip, uh, there's a touch tour at 5 o'clock. We'll go down uh, to the theatre, get up on the stage, explore, find out the uh, props and the costumes that might be of significance. So, And the director will talk to us about what the play's about, give you a bit of a head start for when we come go back in the evening for 7.15. In between times, we have fish and chips or other things uh, in the... Uh, up here at the centre so it's kind of nice the tickets are £12.50 if you're using the bus uh, it's uh, £6 in normal charge uh, with fish and chips on top and the price of that depends on what you have it's becoming increasingly apparent that Covid is all over the shop at the moment um, it's not the horrible horrible um, disease that it was when we f- when it first started thank heavens but it's still pretty miserable. Uh, I know, because I've had it. Uh, the More and more people are getting it. So what we'd like to ask you to do is uh, take account of hygiene when you come in here. So please do wash your hands thoroughly um, before you arrive, if you can, after you arrive. There's um, hand sanitizer everywhere in the... Um, in the charity, Heather may or Carol may well um, get you to uh, put some of the hand sanitizer on at reception. Uh, please do take every opportunity. Um, ask for, if you're a bit worried about it. Ask for the windows to be opened. This particular strain doesn't seem to be particularly uh, chesty in terms of, uh, of respiratory illness. Uh, well, it certainly wasn't for me. I had a bit of a bit of a cough, mm-hmm. but nothing too much. But it just wipes you out. It's like a, a really bad flu in that respect. But actually without the other stuff that you get with flu. So um, anyway, really don't want it. I can promise you it's horrible. Um, But um, uh, do take care of your hygiene. Now, um, some of you will know that we sell um, a brand of um, eye shields here called Cocoons. um, And they're really, really good. And I I favour them a lot and I sell a lot of them. Um, Eye shields are... Uh, eyewear that uh, cuts out glare for people. Uh, there are different colours available. We have four here on offer that uh, cut out particular wavelengths of light that upset people, and we've got different frame sizes that we can uh, uh, order as well. Uh, and they're from a company called Associated Optical. Now, we sell these things for £36. If you tried to buy them yourself, you'd be paying you know, somewhere in the region of 65 or 70 So they're, they're, it's really very good idea to, to buy them through us if you need eye shields. Now, um, the representative from Associated Optical was in uh, yesterday and he's got loads of good deals. They're a lovely company. We really like dealing with them. Um, so we've got some new colours. So I'm going to order order some um, uh, new colours, particularly grey, but there's some, a couple of others as well that I'm going to oh, bring in. want some nice flattering autumn colours. Yeah, well, these are just the lenses, <laughs> the tinted lenses. So we'll have, we'll have, uh, we'll have the grey ones because those are quite good. Uh, if, particularly for people who, who favour green, um, actually the grey can work as well um, so there's no telling what anybody will have but the the frames are really good I mean the standard cocoon frames they're they're um, a a rather nice sort of tactiles not furry but just you know uh, nice matte black plastic um, they're very sturdy um, they look 
just like ordinary sunglasses, except they've got, um, they can fit over your um, existing eyewear if you wear it. Um, they have brow ridges to stop light getting in from the top and uh, wide uh, uh, arms as well so that you can, so that it uh, stops light creak, uh, creeping in from the side Sorry. as well. Because with the weather changing and autumn coming on, you get lights on the roads, cars, you do. earlier. You do, and the sun goes low in the yes. sky, and if it's been raining, it all, you know, it'll it'll glare on glares, the reflects up yeah. off, the, off, the, off the road and the pavement, so, yes. uh, you know, it can be quite difficult. I mean, it's, you know, it's bright sunshine in the summer, that can be an issue. Bright sunshine in the winter, yeah. also an issue. Yes. So, if you want eye shields, we have them, uh, and we can order some more. I'm also, as I say, although those black frames are really nice, actually they've got some kind of funky ones as well. <laughs> Copper... Um, uh, and uh, they've got like blue swirly ones. Yes. That, they, they look like, really nice, actually. So we're you know so we can offer we'll offer a few different uh, different varieties now. But uh, they'll still be thirty six pounds. Uh, so uh, there's some others out there that are a bit more expensive but I'm not going to take those just yet. And glare off buildings is another issue. Absolutely yes it's absolutely huge you know you're walking down the road and you know yes. the, you know, the sun's shining off a window straight yes, at or, you. Yes or the buildings, Elston Park Village their new yep. building is white it, and it yes, reflects. Yes absolutely and the thing is you know glare you know, e- you know if you've got partial sight or if you've mm. got some usable sight you know glare can wipe that out. It's damaging. It can, it can wipe it out for you so it's definitely worth it if you struggle with glare coming and talking to us about it. Now, Associated Optical, I'm going to go on because I, so I really like the company. They do a number of things, um, uh, including um, digital magnifiers, and they've got some really nice digital magnifiers. At the moment, I have one, a 7-inch Visilux, which is sort of a, sort of a handheld 7-inch um, uh, uh, screen um, that, uh, that magnifies digitally, and you can change the contrast so you, you, it's working off a, a black background with yellow writing on or whatever. Um, now, normally, if you were to buy, try and buy that yourself, it's 800 quid. But if you buy it through us, it's 546. And these go even more. So if you're thinking about doing these, we have a 12, there's a 12-inch version, which I'm going to get in, um, which, um, if you were to buy it from us, would be 798 pounds. And if, you, if you've done any investigation, you will know that that is a really good price, because if you tried to buy this yourself, you know, independently, it would be £1,500 mm. for this particular unit. And that's about a page. Yes, it's sort of, uh, well, 12-inch, yeah, it's sort of, uh, well, obviously, obviously it's a foot, but it's, uh, yeah, it's about yeah. the size of a, um, yeah, about the size of an A4 piece of paper, I suppose, mm-hmm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, CCTVs, well, some people swear by them, they're not so, they're not so popular now as they, as they once were, but um, a 16-inch CCTV, which is a desktop version when you put uh, whatever it is you want to read under it and the, the screen is sort of right in front of your face, um, if you were to try and buy it yourself, uh, new be £2,200 they're not cheap these things um, but we can supply for £1,500 so, that, so that's a if you're thinking about any of this sort of technology please do come and talk to us because we have demonstration examples you can find out if it works for you and you know with some of them we can absolutely uh, give you a cracking uh, give you a cracking discount um, similarly with daylight lamps um, some, some people find these really useful um, they, there's uh, one by Eschenbach, they're the uh, magnifier manufacturer that, uh, that uh, we use. Um, uh, superb quality, it's a very 
nice desk lamp that uh, you can move around all over the place. It's not a it's not um, an angle poised lamp, but you can move it in many of the same ways. Um, now these things people will know are, are pretty expensive if you try, if you try and buy them yourself. Daylight lamps or ones that are mm-hmm. designed specifically for people with visual impairments and ones you can bring below the eye line. Mm-hmm. Um, if you try to buy it yourself, it's 199 quid, but we can do it for 138. So if you want to, you know, if you're exploring mm-hmm. that sort of thing, there is a more economy version here uh, that we can sell for 58 instead of um, I haven't got that price down with me. It's about about um, 87 pounds. So you know we can we've you know so we've got really good deals um, on quite a lot of equipment, um, and you know we can try and find what works for you um, so please do come and talk to us about it um, give us a call as I say on 024 7671 about any of these uh, any of these issues so if you want to talk particularly about um, uh, the equipment uh, from Associated Optical which the cocoons uh, the digital uh, magnifiers or the um, uh, or the lamps uh, do talk to reception um, and make a, an appointment to come and see me um, or one of my colleagues as soon as I train them up. Uh, now, uh, the other, one more thing, uh, we're having new phones installed at the centre, uh, brand new phones on a very digital uh, system uh, that will give us quite a lot more flexibility. So what is going to happen uh, is that, uh, well, they're being installed on Friday, it's coming Friday, so if you get this on Friday, Hopefully it'll already happened, but uh, if you're listening on the podcast version, then uh, we're still a bit previous. Uh, there may be some slight disruption to the phones on Friday. Um, hopefully there won't be. I cannot tell, uh, but we will. Uh, but we will see. In any case, uh, there'll be new messages when you call in. We're going to try and keep most of the numbers um, uh, that. You, you might use for getting through to reception and certainly for talking to the talking newspaper uh, the same so the, those buttons that you press you should go through but uh, there, may, there will be a couple of changes there but it, it, it'll be relatively simple I hope okay and that's, that's me been going on for quite a long time today and uh, thank you for your attention and I will be back with you next week thank you very much Hugh as usual plenty to talk about and now Sarah is here again with another round of roundup of sport over the last week. Outlook Sport. Well, hello there, listeners, and welcome to this week's sport. Now, I have two matches to report from Coventry City. Firstly, on Wednesday night. They took on Blackburn Rovers at home. Now, I had a bit of a problem that Wednesday night because I had three things clashing. I had the football I wanted to listen to, the gymnastics I wanted to watch, and a church meeting to go to. Anyway, I did the right thing and I went to the church meeting, albeit on Zoom and only for just over half of it, which meant I switched on to the match just about in in the second half. And from the commentary that had gone on at the half-time, the first half had been as dull as ditch water. So I think that was a good miss. Anyway, shortly before the end of full time, one of our strikers scored. Had he right? 
one nil. And we didn't concede this time during injury time like we had done the last couple of times. So that was how it ended, 1-0. Now, rather excitingly, it was back to the CBS Arena on Saturday afternoon. I know, we've been longing to get back to the CBS on a Saturday afternoon. Anyway, Coventry took on Norwich. Could we make it three wins in a row? Short answer, no. In fact, they scored twice. However, the first time, courtesy of, shall we say, a mess-up by one of our defenders who seemed to pass straight into the way of one of their attackers and he scored 1-0 Norwich. Then, shortly before the end of the game, the tables were slightly turned a bit because they had a bit of a mess up and one of their defenders headed into their own goal and scored for us. And that was how the match ended. Coventry won, Norwich won. Anyway, guys, come on. Seven points from nine. Ain't bad going. Now, going down several leagues, it was the first qualifying round for the first round proper of the FA Trophy. With me so far? Anyway, Nuneaton Borough beat Carlton 1-0 and Stratford Town beat Barford 1-0. But sadly, Leamington lost away to Redditch 2-1. Anyway, the Bairds and the Borough go into the hat for the first round proper this time. Now, there is no championship, e.g. Coventry City match, next Saturday because there's an international break again. However, the, fo the following Saturday, that is October the 21st, Coventry are away to Bristol City. So unless you want him to travel down to Bristol and Ashton Gate, I think I would listen to it on CWR. So what about the rugby? Well, you may remember that I reported that it was the final round of the qualifying group for the Premiership Cup and Coventry were going away to Gloucester who are one of the very big boys in the Premier and Coventry held their own it was 12-12 at half time but then Gloucester rallied and at one stage made it 27-12 but then we rallied and at one stage it was 27.31 to Coventry. But then on the final, almost final kick of the ball, they scored a try and the final score was 32 points to 31. But Coventry, you can be very proud of yourselves because in this tournament you've beaten Saracens 
you drawn with Harlequins and you only lost by one point to Gloucester. And those are three of the biggest clubs in the Premier. So well done, Cov. Now, in the Rugby World Cup, the main match of the weekend was Ireland versus Scotland. Going into this tournament, you may remember I said that Ireland were ranked number one in the world and Scotland ranked five. Unfortunately, in their group of five, they also have South Africa, who are currently ranked second. Now, Ireland had beaten South Africa, but Scotland had lost to South Africa. So... Scotland needed to beat Ireland and not let them get the, the extra point for four tries. Well, Ireland had cracked that one by half-time. They'd scored their four tries, so we got a healthy lead and their bonus point. But Scotland rallied back and the final result was Ireland 36 Scotland 14. So sadly, I, well not sadly for Ireland, but sadly for Scotland, Ireland progress, as do England and Wales already. Although England had a very narrow squeak this weekend against Samoa, against whom they had never lost previously. And... Well, Samoa were winning right up till near the end when England just managed to nudge ahead and won 18 points to 17. Hmm, must do better next time, boys. As most of you know by now, gymnastics is my real passion. And I have to say, this year at the World Championships, I was totally blown away by the young American, Simone Biles. She is just such a wonderful woman. Age 26, she first competed in Antwerp, where this year's championship was being held 10 years ago. That is a decade at the top. She's had time off for a mental health concern and she hasn't had an easy ride at all but she is just so lovely so gracious so bubbly and so nice and if she doesn't win bbc international sports person of the year well i'll pickle me coconuts and i won't say any more than that but those of you who remember len goodman will know what i mean so I'll start off with the team competition. Now this year, each team had to put forward three gymnasts who competed not on every piece of apparatus. They could change from a pool of about six. But the three gymnasts who were competing all counted. So a fall was very costly. And it was all going so well for Great Britain until we started. And in the first event, one of our gymnasts crash-landed on the vault. 
whilst another put her foot in the wrong place on the asymmetric bars and flew off when she wasn't meant to be doing a landing and another had a wobble that turned into a fall off the beam. Anyway, we finished sixth. First were the United States. No shot there. Second were Brazil, who claimed their first ever gymnastics world medal. And third were France, claiming their first since 1950. So it's good to see things shaken up. Now in the men's team, again it was three of three. And at one stage, Great Britain going into the final two rotations was second. But then one of our competitors flew off the high bar when he wasn't meant to and another fell off the floor, which is the technical term for landing outside the permitted area with both feet. Anyway, we finished fourth. First were Japan, second were China and third were the United States. And in the individual men's, it was also won by a Japanese gymnast, Yukushima Hashimoto. <clears throat> yes. One of our athletes, James Hall, finished ninth, and Jake Jarman finished 13th. So, on with the women's individual. Well, there was really only ever one gold medalist. Simone Biles. She won by nearly two full marks compared to the tenth, which separated the second and the third. And this has made her the most medalled gymnast, man or woman, in the history of all gymnastics. Full stop. As I said before, not bad for somebody who's come back after a serious mental health issue. Now, of our gymnasts, I want to give a big shout out and a bit of an and finally to Alice Kinsella. Alice wasn't in the final of the all-round gymnasts. She was the reserve. And then, just before the end of the warm-up, she got the call because Jessica Gadarova had injured herself, not majorly, but enough to want to pull out of the competition. So young Alice, who'd only done stretches, she'd done nothing on any of the equipment as a warm-up, stepped up and took part and finished a very credible seventh. Andine Champignon finished 13th. So, well done, ladies, and particularly to you, Alice, but I'm afraid there'll only ever be one Simone Biles to me. And that has been your sport. Bye, folks. Have a great week. Another roundup of the highlights of the last week's sport from Sarah. And from sport, we move to your spot in Outlook. Postbag with Dave. This is Postbag. Join in the discussion. 
Hello and a big welcome to your postbag this week. First of all, a message from Rose's daughter Jo to her mum at the volunteers party at the resource centre where it was announced that one of the two ladies who saved the centre Rosie Brady was retiring. Here's Joe. Oh, hi, you mum. You've done brilliantly today to last this like mad celebration of the volunteers and your life. You have brought life, fun, and laughter to this place, and may it continue. You are the most amazing woman anyone could ever meet, and you look so glamorous with your matching earrings, matching outfit always and forever love you Hugh said in his speech that the friendliness and welcome that the resource centre has owes a lot to Rosie well done and thank you Rosie and if you would like to send your good wishes to Rosie please do via postbag she will hear them as she listens to Outlook so this is the most direct way of getting a message to her via postbag and I would like to say thank you for all the people who came up to talk to me at the party and asked how I was bearing in mind that I lost my lovely wife Sheila early this year Isabel whom I used to know as a volunteer at Exel Grange School now a helper in the Braille class told me how much she enjoyed the world blind sports she said I seemed to be having a whale of a time thank you very much I really did enjoy it but not just the sports but the people I met one person was Mike Brace who 40 years ago I talked about after reading his book as part of a series on activities that blind and partially sighted people could take up such as skiing so it was a thrill to meet the author of the book 40 years later my youngest son Graham told me the times of the trains so I could get to Birmingham University where I collected my media pass and reported on blind football and then I went to Birmingham Symphony Hall to report on the opening ceremony I then went back to report on the judo and then to the CBS Arena Coventry to report on the gold ball I hope you enjoyed the reports and interviews because I did them just for you uh, Julia went somewhere close to home and that was the Summer Care Fair guess who went to the Summer Care Fair my mum, my two sisters and me Donna and mum walked around the building but I went round the stalls with Denise they sold toys, cakes, chocolates and jewellery as well as elephants, kangaroos and giraffes then we all went outside and ate about 30 hot dogs each Donna told us all about a Roman holiday and said she went swimming in Venice try to walk across Lake Como drunk again and got bitten by mosquitoes in Florence my mum doesn't talk a lot anymore and that's a pity because my friend John says she got a lovely Jamaican accent next week I'll be talking about money again because it's my favourite thing to talk about and in response to 784 requests I might tell you the answers 
to my cash quiz. And don't forget the magnificent cash prize that my friend John will be awarding the winner. Well, he didn't think I would be paying, did you? Keep safe. Lots of love. Julia. Well, thank you, Julia. We'll look forward to the answers to the money quiz based on the talk you gave at the Monday Club. I was sitting next to Wynne at the Monday Club and she told me how she helped to open the Black Country Living Museum that Graham and I have been reporting on for Outlook since he was 16. And the first time I legged it through the canal tunnel, helping to propel the barge through the tunnel. Here's Wynne. Yes, uh, I belong to the Canal Society and we were the first members that opened the Black Country Museum. Wow, so what was it like then? Well, it wasn't very big. <laughs> Not like it is now. Did they organise canal trips? Yes, um, we used to go on boat trips through the uh, tunnels and uh, they'd lie on the back on the board and they'd get through. Yes. Wynne said she once took a party of school children to the Black Country Museum where they had a lesson in the old schoolroom like they would have had a hundred years ago. Some children were crying as some got the cane. Wynne had to tell them it was only a game. Here's an excerpt from one of Graham and myself's reports. This head teacher is strict. So what do you think of school 100 years ago, Shannon? Scary. What did the headmistress say to you? To stop slouching or else you'll have detention. Oh dear, you are in trouble today, aren't you? Doreen Hilton has much happier times, much happier memories on sports day at Licky Grange School, Bromsgrove. Here she is to talk about them. When I was at Licky Grange in the 50s, we used to have sports day. And the sports day was really lovely. The parents come to see us all. And um, we had several races and we had the obstacles. We had the egg and spoon race, which was beautiful. And also we had the three-legged race. And um, the three-legged race was lovely. And also we had wheelbarrow. And what we had to do was um, somebody ordered you and you had to run. First one who got in, um, obviously they was the winner. And um, it, it was so lovely to do it. And um, it brings back a lot of uh, memories to me, um, you know, because we had such a wonderful time when we had our sports days, like. The egg and spoon race... Um, you know, we stood there and you had to have a really sense of your hand, steady hand. You had to walk with it. And if the egg come off the spoon, you was out. So you had to carry it all along the line and see who got in first. And they was the winner and you got a little prize. I think it was really lovely. And the obstacle, that was something where you had to crawl under a cover. It was a very thick cover as well, on your knees, 
And the same thing, the first one who got through, um, they was the winner and they got a little prize. And I think when you come um, second prize as well and third, you didn't get as much as what you got for the first first prize. But um, there you go. But I think they do still keep up sports day in some of the schools. I'm not sure whether that's all Grange does it. They must do. Yes, there have been some great sports days at Exhall Grange School and also a Jim Carner at possibly the school's biggest school summer show and our own listener Richard Bignall was in charge of organising them. They were fantastic. And now a quick tip from Edwina you might like to try for helping you to see better or send in your thoughts on her suggestion. Hi everybody, it's Edwina. I'm on the subject about going into autumn and the darkness again. This is perhaps a little bit of help to you. Some of you do luckily have enough sight to use a reader. Now, if you are starting to get more difficulty because of loss of sight, and you did used to wear glasses at one time, have you got any of your old glasses lying around? Use your old glasses and try to see better. You might be lucky enough to have lenses that just make it clearer again. It's worth trying. Keep smiling, everybody. Bye. Thank you, Edwina. I understand some blind people wear glasses to protect their eyes from uh, dust, etc. And also, people who use Orcam, a camera and speaker that attaches to the side of a pair of glasses. Or, if you don't wear glasses, glassless frames to read something that's in front of you out loud such as a menu. I've just bought some new glasses with darkening lenses to help slow up the growth of cataracts. I'm keeping the old glasses as a spare as my prescription is still the same. Well, let us have your thoughts or experiences with glasses or any other subjects you want to discuss. Thank you for your messages this week. Please let us hear from you next time. There's lots of ways you can talk to us. You can phone up the Resource Centre on 02476 717 522 and press 5 for Coventry Talking Newspaper and start speaking. Or you can write a letter either written by you or someone on your behalf or you can uh, send me an email if you want, davidmonks.hotmail.com Lots of ways. Thank you very much and bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. Your postbag for this week with Dave. As you know from last week's Outlook, Sarah has now started a What's On in Coventry, which will generally be once a fortnight. But she's here again right now.
Yes, welcome to this fortnight's edition of On In Cov. Now I've got five events for you which I've tried to cover a wide range of genres. So I hope there really is something here for, for you all. Right, I will start with the Belgrade. Now there is a screening of the classic film Singing in the Rain at, on Monday the 16th of October in the 1988 screening room. I have to say, I don't know where that is, but I'm sure staff at the Belgrade will be very helpful and help you to find it if you don't know either. Now, doors open at 12.30, but then there is afternoon tea served from 1pm. The film itself starts at 2pm and running time is 1 hour 42 minutes. So you should be out by about 4 if you're being picked up. Now in the main theatre is the real and imaginary history of the Elephant Man. This runs from Thursday the 26th of October to Saturday the 28th of October and is described as powerful and surprising. I certainly was very moved when I saw the film and can still remember it quite clearly, although I'm afraid it must be about 35 years ago now. Now the play starts at half past seven with a matinee presumably on the Saturday at 2pm. Tickets start from £18. Now for both of those events, and I'm sorry I don't have a price for the film, but for both events ring 024 7655 3055 but don't forget the box office is only open for phone inquiries between half past 10 and 2 p.m. Meanwhile, moving up to the Warwick Arts Centre, which as I said last week, is in Coventry, just. Ramish Ranga Nation is doing two nights. I have to say, I do think he is one of the best comedians on the television although he's not a stand-up as such normally I mean you may have come to know him from um, presenting the weakest link of late but I really think he's one of the funniest men on TV and by and large he's quite clean which is r rare now for some of our comics now, Ramish is at the Art Centre on Wednesday the 18th of October and Thursday the 19th. And it will be in the Butterworth Hall, which is the big symphony hall, starting at 8pm. I can't find the ticket price. However, I'm sure the box office would be very willing to help you and take your money. They're available on 
Now, coming back nearer the city centre, at the Albany Theatre, we have the play entitled Crimes on Centre Court. This runs at the theatre on Tuesday the 17th of October and Wednesday the 18th with performances at half past seven and also a matinee at 2pm. Great, I can go. Now it's described as, Lord knows, the chair of the Wimbledon International Invitation Tennis Tournament is suddenly found dead and his son, Hugh, is very suspicious and tries to involve the police but they don't want to know so he hires a couple of PIs Perry and Penny Pink sounds really good I'm hoping to go to the matinee Someone Like You as the title may give away features the hits of the great chantress Adele and is on on Friday the 20th of October at half past seven. Now, I don't have a ticket price for that. That is purely my own fault because I didn't write it down. But for both of those, you can ring the box office on 024 7699 8964 and I hope I've found something that you'll like and has tickled your fancy there happy show going as well as the Belgrade, the Albany and Warwick Arts Centre I think Sarah might soon be adding the criterion Paxton's Arboretum in London Road Cemetery has had some fascinating characters associated with it and here's Margaret with more of those interesting people taken from the Heritage Park Times Historic Coventry of 2023. William George Fretton Antiquarian and school teacher William Fretton was instrumental in raising the profile of Coventry's medieval history at a time when the study of the distant past and archaeology was in its infancy. Born in Coventry in 1829, he succeeded his father as headmaster of Catherine Bailey's school in 1856, introducing his pupils to a number of innovations, notably a library, a band, drawing classes and excursions. In the mid-1870s, during major renovations to St John the Baptist Church in Spon Street, he was instrumental in highlighting the building's historic fabric so that it could be preserved. A decade later, he was prominent in the campaign to keep the old grammar school in Hale Street from being sold to an American businessman who wanted to ship it to the United States. Fretton compiled many reports on local treasures for institutions like the Society of Antiquaries and also edited Thomas Sharp's monumental book on the history antiquities of the city of Coventry. When he died in 1900, civic figures and former pupils in large numbers turned out to pay their respects to a man whose love of his native city's past knew few bounds.
Sidney Burney. As a chronicler of the Coventry of his day, Sidney Burney has few equals. More than 500 paintings and drawings, now held by the Herbert Art Gallery and Museum, cover the city's landmark historical buildings, architectural details, street scenes and open spaces. And they are still regarded by architects and historians as an accurate record of Coventry as it was in the first three decades of the 20th century. Born in 1877 in Payne's Lane, where his father worked in the ribbon industry, Bunny became a student at Coventry School of Art as a teenager and in 1899 secured a place to study at the South Kensington Art School, now the Royal College of Art. Up until 1913, his output was small, but while working in the armaments industry during the First World War, Bunny spent almost every minute of his spare time sketching and painting his home city. For the rest of his life, he carried a pad of watercolour paper with him so that he could sketch whatever caught his eye and colour it later when he got home. Many of his paintings served as a social record of the streets he knew, and Bunny himself had a strong social conscience setting out his views in the hardback exercise book on subjects as varied as poor housing in the city and the politics of the general strike. He was still sketching and painting in Coventry right up to his death in 1928. Charles Walter Hathaway Siegfried Betterman may have founded the Triumph Company, but it was his legendary works manager, Charles Hathaway, who made it work. Born in London, the son of a piano manufacturer, Hathaway moved to Coventry in 1890 and after a short spell in the watchmaking industry, joined Triumph. He made an instant impact and was credited with simplifying the construction and improving the mechanical efficiency of the firm's products. Alongside his gifts as an engineer and factory organiser, Hathaway possessed a genius for man management and over the next 25 years became one of Coventry's most admired managers. When he died in July 1915, at the early age of 51, thousands lined the streets to pay their respects to his funeral procession as it passed on its way to the London Road Cemetery. Tragically, his son Sidney, an observer in the Royal Flying Corps, was killed in France just six months later. They are buried in the same grave. How many of you recall the entertaining Big T television advertisement many years ago featuring Maureen Lippmann as BT? But now, Dame Maureen Lippmann is best known for playing the ferret-faced battle axe in Coronation Street. But be warned, if you cross her, she can be just as strident in real life. During her five years at Coronation Street, Maureen Lippmann's hilarious, acerbic put-downs as Battleaxe Evelyn Plummer have won her millions of admirers and a nomination for Best Serial Drama Performance at this year's National Television Awards. But while her acting talents are undisputed, Dame Maureen admits there is sometimes a very thin line between her and her sharp-tongued character, and anyone who underestimates her 
does so at their peril. I was walking from the studios to my flat the other day and some boys came past on the back wheels of their bikes shouting on their phones, she says. I didn't hear them coming so I shouted, hey, just watch where you're going. Their response was, get a life, you ugly old cow. You can only laugh at that. Clearly unaffected by the encounter, Maureen's Evelyn-esque behaviour didn't stop there. I stopped two young men yesterday who were parked up on the pavement, she recounts. They had their engine on, so I said, excuse me, is this your car? They said, yes, and I said, well, turn the engine off, and they asked, why? I said, pollution, and they said, why don't you do just go yourself? But it was the boys on the bikes who really got Maureen's goat. So much so that she actually wrote to the Manchester Mayor, Andy Burnham, to complain. I never even got a reply, she reveals. You don't. Nobody gives a damn. Maureen says writing to the Mayor is something Evelyn would definitely do. Neither of us are afraid to speak our minds, and like Evelyn, I can be quite impulsive, and I do get passionate about things, she adds. Bicycle lanes drive me insane, as do those stupid great mini air raid shelters that they've put up for bikes. Why they think the bike is the answer to everything, I'll never know. There's a lot of me in Evelyn, very dry, and you might say judgmental. The legendary actress arrived on the cobbles as Tyrone Dobbs' long-last grandmother five years ago. I liked what they created. It was old-style Corrie, she explains. And once you commit to a character who looks like a ferret and has a horrible wardrobe and certain prejudiced attitudes, then after a few months she's honed inside you. These northern women are very colourful, and I think that's why she works. She's a battle axe and says it like it is, but she's also quite erudite. She's dry and she's funny. The more comedy there is in Coronation Street, the better people like it. Aged 77 and widowed, Maureen admits there are also more poignant reasons why she has stayed with the show. Despite the fact it's filmed in Manchester, 200 miles away from London, where she normally lives, close to her two children and two grandchildren. We're pack creatures, we're meant to touch and laugh together, she explains. She especially loves all the banter she has with the younger women in the cast. When they tell me what they get up to and are enlightening me about certain words I've never heard of, that's the joy of work. There's a lot of moaning, a lot of laughter and a lot of smut. And at the end of the day, I come home to my flat in Manchester, and I'm on my own, and it's fine. It's fine to sit and watch the repair shop, because I've been with people all day. That is what every human being wants. Maureen's screen career began in 1968, in the acclaimed film Up the Junction. Since then, she's appeared in films including Educating Rita and The Pianist, plus countless theatre and television roles, including the popular sitcom Agony. Many still remember her fondly from the hugely popular 1980s BT adverts, where she played proud grandmother Beatty. 
She's won a legion of new fans with her hilarious appearances on Celebrity Box, alongside her friends Giles Brandreth. Maureen received her first award in 1985, a Laurence Olivier Award, for the comedy See How They Run in London's West End. And 38 years later, the accolades keep coming. As well as making this year's National Television Awards shortlist, she was recently crowned Best Comedy Performer at the British Soap Awards, and at the Inside Soap Awards, she's been nominated for Best Actress, Best Comic Performance and Best Partnership, alongside David Nielsen, who plays Roy Cropper. She's also won plaudits for her epic performance in Rose, a one-woman play which sees her on stage alone for two hours. I've been working for 57 years and I've never quite achieved so much approbation, she says. I don't expect it to last, but it does make you feel appreciated. Meanwhile, there are still some remaining ambitions, one of them to appear on Broadway, having inexplicably been dropped from two West End shows that transferred there. Every time I've been in a hit show in London, it's gone to Broadway, and they haven't taken me with them and I've watched the role go to someone else, she says with a stoical shrug. Oklahoma, I wasn't allowed to go. A little night music, I wasn't allowed to go. Perhaps Rose, with its one-woman role, will be the play that takes her across the Atlantic. That would be very nice. When I'm packing my case, I'll let you know. Of all her roles, she says Coronation Street is her favourite. But would I want to be in it for 60 years? No. Am I wavering about whether to go or stay? Yes. Would I like to have a nice cameo in a movie? Yes. In the meantime, she has plenty to keep her busy on the Corrie Cobbles. Having told grandson Tyrone, Alan Halsall, that his drug addict mum Cassie, Claire Sweeney, is dead, Evelyn was rocked by Cassie's return. The two went away so Evelyn could help her daughter sort out her life. When they returned, Evelyn tried to keep mother and son apart until she was confident her daughter had genuinely stopped using drugs, but Cassie bumped into Tyrone and revealed her identity. A lot of people say that Evelyn has lied, but I don't think she has lied. I think she's been economical with the truth, Maureen says. Evelyn's only heard from her in the last ten months, so wouldn't you think she was dead? Cassie had gone away, and she's a drug addict, so it's more than likely that she'd overdosed. Awarded a damehood for services to charity, entertainment and the arts, Maureen was married to the writer Jack Rosenthal from 1973 until his death in 2004. She was then in a 13-year relationship with former businessman Guido Castro until his death from Covid in 2021. Recently she met a new gentleman friend, but she says she prefers not to discuss him. I shouldn't even bring it up, she adds but it pops up because it's a very happy thing. I'm in a very happy place. It's in its fourth month and it's a huge gift for both of us, but I don't want to say any more.
tempting though it is to press for more information, Maureen then closes the subject firmly down. And since we've already been warned just how quickly she can cross over into feisty Evelyn-style territory, clearly it's wise to respect her wishes. Earlier, we looked back at characters associated with Paxton's Arboretum. Now Keith is here to say the way we were from an article in the Earlson Echo. Regular Echo reader Ernest Parbury contacted us recently to lend us a copy of Cov, subtitled Coventry's Own Magazine, from more than 80 years ago. Ernest is a member of the family which owned the well-known company of stationers, Parbury Office Supplies, which had premises in Albany Road. The magazine was published by his father. This particular issue was from April 1939, and not long after, sadly, the outbreak of World War II led to publication being halted, never to resume. Ernest thought that perhaps we would see certain similarities between Cov and Echo. Despite our preference to be called a newspaper rather than a magazine, and Cov being aimed at the whole city, as its name implies, the two publications have plenty in common in terms of format and content, with a diary of events, information about local sports, history, community, interest groups, societies, arts and entertainment, libraries and so on. Particularly interesting, given the current emphasis on the cost of living crisis, is a forensic examination of the household budget of a family living in Charlesmore. Once the reader gets their head around the free decimal currency, the figures quoted seem bizarre. Eight shillings and sevenpence spent solely on bread and milk a week, for example. Whilst it seems surprising that a not exceptionally wealthy family with a collective income of £5 per week were nonetheless managing to buy a house and run a car, bought on higher purchase. On the other hand, a lot of the material in Cov is very much of its own time. The feature on a family in the north of the city consisting of mother, father and 14 children might perhaps make a Channel 5 documentary in 2023, but the tone is very different as is the mitigation that the two oldest children can be discounted as they have left home to work in service, which sounds a bit old-fashioned even for 1939. The popularity of the cinema in those pre-TV days leaps off the page. At its peak, there were 30 cinemas in the city, and in April 1939, for Earls and residents, that included the Astoria in Albany Road, showing films we may have heard of like Angels with Dirty Faces, starring James Cagney, and ones we might not know, such as Having a Wonderful Time, Ginger Rogers and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Meanwhile, people in Spawn End could go to the plaza and see Ginger Rogers again and Fred Astaire in Carefree or the less well-known Simone Simon in Josette. 
Another interesting feature is about relatively new attraction in 1939 of spending a summer holiday not in a Blackpool boarding house, but in one of Billy Butlin's holiday camps in Skegness or Clacton. There is a certain naive charm in the descriptions of the unlimited opportunities for fun and overindulgence in a world of luxury chalets where there is round-the-clock entertainment and no fearsome landlady to kick guests out in the rain all day. These camps possessed two of the largest heated swimming pools on the East Coast, which may well have been the case, but sounds, shall we say, a little in need of context. Were there some that were larger still? Were those on the West Coast gargantuan? Or was heating considered an unnecessary indulgence in Mablethorpe and Great Yarmouth? One theme that certainly resonates with 2023 concerns, and probably with those of every other age as well, is what was clearly a live debate about town planning and modernisation. Kolb argues in favour of modern architecture on the lines that if people had always succeeded in preserving old buildings in aspic, then there would never be any change or improvement. This would have been quite controversial in a city described in the 1930s as one of the best-preserved medieval cities in England. There are also some scathing words about the introduction of mock Tudor designs in Trinity Street. It is poignant with the benefit of hindsight to see how little idea citizens had of the extent to which such decisions would be taken out of their hands within 18 months. The mood is entirely optimistic and the world was their oyster in what was perceived to be the country's most prosperous and successful city. Our thanks again to Ernest Parbury for allowing us to glimpse into an almost forgotten world. We seem to be doing a lot of recounting history this week, and that continues with Bill concluding his story of the daring dambusters 80 years after their heroic sortie to the Ruhr Valley. Yet the advent of the 80th anniversary also highlights how this famous act is now increasingly marginalised by parts of British officialdom, where reverence for our past is in short supply. It is a spirit of contempt that shines through the potential fate of 617 Squadron's former base at Scampton. Plans have been drawn up by the local authority and businesses to turn the site into a heritage centre as an enduring tribute the Bambusters. But now that scheme is in tatters because ministers want to turn it into a detention centre for 1,700 asylum seekers, abolishing what was once the squadron's home, including even Guy Gibson's office. Yesterday it emerged that the RAF's heritage team has applied for permission to move the grave of Gibson's black Labrador run over and killed on the night of the mission buried beside a hangar, over fears for the future of the historic site. The Dumbusters deserve better. The raid was the epitome of wartime Britain at its best, a marvel of valour, innovation, audacity and vision, 
apparently insuperable obstacles were overcome in an astonishingly short space of time, as the talents of brilliant engineers and the finest airmen were brought together. Advancing bomb itself were typical of this. The brainchild of Vickers aircraft designer Barnes Wallace, its unorthodoxy was necessary, because the walls of the three dams were protected by netting, so that torpedoes could not be used. Neither could conventional bombs be dropped vertically, because the top of the walls presented far too narrow a target. Having conceived his idea, Wallace experimented with his children at home, <coughs> using marbles that he sent skimming across the water for a filled bathtub. As the bouncing bomb underwent trials at Chesil Beach in Dorset and Reculver Bay in Kent, its shape evolved from a sphere to a cylinder. In addition, crews found the optimum height and speed for the bomber's release with just 60 feet from a plane travelling at 232 miles per hour. Such low-level technical precision was beyond the capability of the RAF's altimeters. 6-1 Squadron's men turned out to be as creative as Wallace. A solution was to install on the underside of a Lancaster two angled spotlights whose beams would converge at exactly 60 feet on the surface. There were a host of other breakthroughs, like the special bomb site to guide the release. Some of the 617 aimers preferred to use carefully measured pieces of string attached to the perspex blister at the front of the plane. During their extensive training over lakes and reservoirs in Britain, the pilots also replicated nighttime conditions by wearing orange goggles and placing blue screens over the cockpit windows. The same dynamism was shown at Avro, the aircraft company that built the Lancaster. Headed by the gifted designer Roy Chadwick, the Avro team made all the required modifications within the deadlines, including the accommodation of heavy apparatus that held the bomb within the fuselage and used a hydraulic motor originally devised for the steering gear in submarine, to spin it backwards before it was dropped. Soon after the raid, Wallace wrote to Chadwick that the whole thing is one of the most amazing examples of teamwork and cooperation in the history of the war. One senior figure who did not show the same outlook was Sir Arthur Harris, head of the command. Forceful but blinkered man, he believed the sole purpose of his force was to pulverise German cities night after night. Anything else was a waste of precious resources and a distraction. On the moment he was first shown the plans for the dam's raid, he was hostile. Proposal, he told the RAF chiefs, was tripe of the wildest description. With so many ifs and buts that there is not the slightest chance of it working. The bouncing bomb, he added, was just about the maddest proposition as a weapon we have come across. Fortunately, he was overruled by the government and the air staff. Operations for the raid continued. Gibson moulded, he 
squadron into a formidable unit. Aged just 24 at the time of the raid, Gibson had already proved he was one of the most intrepid pilots of the RAF, flying no less than 173 missions. A hard disciplinarian, he was also a complex man, owned to self-absorption and violent mood swings. His personal life was filled with emotional conflict, reflected in his stormy marriage and his estrangement from his promiscuous, alcoholic mother. When she died in 1939, in a fire at her London bedsit, sparked after her nightgown trailed over an electric bar heater, he refused to attend her funeral. But in the air he was fearless, a quality he showed in his superb leadership of the dambusters, particularly in the attack on the Moon, when he deliberately flew at the German defences to draw their fire from the other 617 squadron planes. He was awarded the Victoria Cross, and 33 other airmen were decorated after the raid. Gibson was fatally shot down over the Netherlands in 1944. The legacy of his heroism and that of his comrades lives on. From that wonderfully successful mission by the Dambusters to the more parochial history of the hurdy-gurdy days at the start of the 20th century with Alan. Grace attended the school she had started at when she was three years old. She hated it and man was always afraid she would run away. She was a quiet child and just used to sit on the form in the classroom and never utter a sound unless spoken to by a teacher, who really scared her. The school was St. Michael's, and the church school for St. Michael's Church, and was used for day and Sunday school. Our dad and man were married in St. Michael's Church when they were twenty years of age, and both Grace and I were christened there. It later became the Coventry Cathedral. The school was built of stone with windows high up on the wall, making it impossible to see out from them into the classroom. There was a heavy oak door which only the teachers were able to open. It was very old and used to creak and groan on its hinges. Into this door trooped the children, boys and girls from the playground, which was surrounded by a high stone wall and with a big iron gate in the middle, which the teachers used to clang to, and when the last child was in, and woe betide the late comers. Precisely at 9am the big bell rang, and all the children would get into line upon orders from the teachers. As they all filed into the school, through the lobby, where all the hats and coats were hung, one of the favourite boys would be told to watch the gate, and wait there until after prayers, which were read and led by the headmistress, who lived in the schoolhouse next door to the school. She wore a black crinoline dress, and gave the impression of floating into the room as her feet were hidden under the dress. Her hair was dressed in long sausage curls, caught together in a bunch at the back of her head by means of a comb, and she looked just like the pictures of Queen Victoria. When prayers were over, one of the teachers would go to the door and call the boy detailed to watch the gate, who would come into the classroom and report how many children were outside. These poor unfortunate children were then let in by the teacher and sent to the headmistress, whom everybody feared to be caned, regardless of the reason why they were late. No excuse whatever was accepted. Consequently, every morning, at our house between eight and nine, it was a war of nerves. Hurry up, hurry up! Oh, what time? It'll be late. Don't want any more breakfast? Well, take some lunch then, Mam used to say, 
wrapping the thick slice of bread and lard on or dripping, never butter, in newspaper and running out of the door into the street, looking to the right and then the left to see if there were other children about. Ah, yes, there's Nellie Brooks. She's never late, breathing a sigh of relief. One afternoon, soon after Grace had started to school, she was only three, remember, and during a sewing lesson where all the girls had to learn to sew, goodness knows what the boys did, a Miss Sutcliffe handed every child a needle and a piece of white cotton. Whether she made a mistake or had such a large class she was so busy she didn't notice the needle which she gave to Grace had such a tiny hole even a grown-up person would not have been able to thread it. Anyway, our Grace couldn't thread that needle. The white cotton became black and all screwed up. In the end, when one of the other children had to leave the room, Grace, young as she was, saw her opportunity and fled through the open door, out through the big iron gates, which mercifully for Grace were allowed to allow the Coleman through, and down the street as fast as her little legs could carry her, crying all the way, I can't thread the needle, I can't thread the needle. By the time she reached home, all the neighbours knew why she had run away from school and why she was crying, going to one to another about ma'am sending her at all at that age. Mrs. Trapp, who lived at the first house in the court, was very fond of Grace, and carried on alarming, saying to ma'am, If you don't take her back and pull that there teacher's ear out, I will, that bitch, picking on a little unlike her. And she would have done it too, there was no mincing matters with Mrs. Trapp. By morning, Grace had quietened down, so Ma'am went to school with her, watched by all the neighbours, to give the teacher a piece of her mind. Miss Sutcliffe was one of two sisters. The old one was much more austere than the younger one, who was only about eighteen years of age, and hair worn in a pigtail down her back, the fashion of the day. Ma'am couldn't get out of Grace which of these sisters had given a needle to thread, so she yelled at both of them at the top of her voice. "'I'll pull out their pigtail off your head if you do it again,' she threatened the younger sister. On hearing that remark, the older sister came forward and apologised to ma'am, and said it was her, but she was very sorry, and had been busy with the other children, and hadn't noticed the needle she had given Grace had such a tiny hole. She promised it wouldn't happen again, but it was hard work to get Grace to go to school after that scene.' Just up from the road from the school was the 14th century Whitefriars Monastery, now being used as a workhouse. All the children of school age had to attend St. Michael's School, as it was the nearest. They all sat together, boys and girls, on forms at one side of the classroom, away from the other children. They were poorly dressed and clad in sack-like navy blue dresses for the girls and rough-sewed trousers for the boys. The girls had scanty underclothing, when they wanted to leave the room, they were invariably afraid to ask, and often did everything all over the form and onto the floor. They were always being punished for their dirty habits. These poor, half-starved, ill-mannered children, whom nobody cared about or wanted, had to come to school by law. Grace somehow managed to sit at the end of a row near to them. She knew they were different, but although she was sorry for them in her way, they were very rude to her pulling faces and putting their tongues at her. The workhouse children all had their heads shaved because it was easier to keep them clean, and as Mum found it difficult to keep Grace's hair clean, she took it down to the barber's shop one Saturday morning and he shaved off all her hair. Mum told Grace to keep away from the workhouse children because of their dirty habits and bad manners. 
but now her hair had been shaved off like theirs, she thought, hmm, didn't matter. So she still sat at the end of the row, as near to them as she could. Every day when she went back to school after dinner, Nan used to give her a farthing to spend at the sweet shop on the way. The sweets she bought were four ounces for a penny, so Grace got about six sweets for a farthing. She was always fascinated by Mrs. Berry at the sweet shop serving her, as she made up her own bags by screwing up a piece of newspaper into a cornet shape after weighing the sweets on scales and a brass with a brass scoop, polishing brass balanced on three brass chains coming down from a hook, with the same on the other side, where the brass weights were, also polished bright. The sweets were displayed in the window, so little glass dishes with white paper doilies in each dish, no bottles, they were on shelves inside the shop with boiled sweets in it, at two ounces for one penny. There was another sweet shop at the end of the street between the two pubs, where they sold homemade toffee in a square tin on the counter, with a shiny little hammer alongside to break it up into small pieces before putting it on the scales. They also sold homemade rock in sticks and cut up with pinchers. And finally this week, Dave and Graham on a different mission from the last few weeks at the World Blind Games, this time visiting the Black Country Living Museum and seeing what changes there have been since their first visit when Graham was just 16. Welcome to Black Country Living Museum. I'm here with Graham. And there's a, a new 1940s to 1960s high street. Yeah, that's right, yeah. It sounds good. Great stuff. Great stuff. Hey, right, so where are we now, Graham? Inside the brick building. The world's first steam engine. Yeah, that's right. Uh, built in uh, 1712, I think. Yeah, great. So and it actually uh, works well, and Fred uh, didn't visit uh, part of the TV series of it. Wow, I remember that. Fred Dibner, yeah. And here comes a Midland Red double decker bus. And we're about to go inside an old house with an upright piano. Okay, and Graham's going to play the piano. Oh, that's lovely. It's changed a bit since we last uh, came, and you also helped me do a report when you were 16. <laughs> yeah, the midline, yeah. It was, yeah. Yeah, we, we went around on the midline. It cost us about uh, £3.85 to go all, all over the West Midlands by train. And here we are, Radio Pianos Television, Stanton Shop. Right, there's an advert for his master's voice in the window. And so, okay, the, the big question is, what's the dog called? It's uh, Nipper. Nipper. It's, yeah, the H&B dog, which is his master's voice, is, is called Nipper. Okay, right. 
Yeah. All right, we have a dance set, a record player now with the uh, kind of where you can pile the records up and they'll drop. That's one it. By that's one. it. They came in in red and cream or blue or blue and cream. Yeah. Cost eighteen pounds to buy, so a lot of people shared them or had them second hand. Yeah. Um, this one was actually found in a hedge and has been reconditioned. Really? Yeah. Well, good job. Still playing. Yeah, still it. playing. Are you going to stick it on? I'm going to stick it on. Okay. And you know, you know, you were talking about six records. Yeah. You had to put a penny on the needle. So after it got past four records, the needle didn't bounce up and down and slide across the record. Oh, I see. Right. So the, okay, a bit of Doris Day. Can't beat a bit of Doris, can you? Yeah, no. There you go. Very good. And if you put the top down, I'll put the top down. It gets better. Isn't it? Yeah. Yes. I'm not surprised that records are coming back in fashion. There's nothing like it. It's that. It's a richer tone, a far richer tone, and that crackle. That crackle just brings back so many memories. People love it. People love it. Thank you very much. What's your name? My name is Kirsty. Kirsty. Okay. So what we got here, Graham? It's a musical instrument shop, and in they got musical beautiful lessons of songs. Yeah, I used to do that. You used to, you used to go into the booth and you used to listen to the 45-inch record before you bought it, which was excellent. So what are you listening to? What are we listening to now? Lipstick on my car. West Bromwich Building Society. Let's go inside. Hey, I'm talking to the man serving me on the counter. I'll be West Bromwich Building Society. So what, what points and, and notes have you got here for me? Well, the smallest valued note that I've got here is actually the 10 shilling or the 10 bob note. I remember that, yes. We're set in 1949 here, so this might not be quite the design that you remember, though, I have to say. Really? Yeah. In this note here, for example, you won't see any monarch featured on them. The only lady featured on here is Britannia. Yeah. Okay, right there. And you've got a one-pound note. Yes, I kind of miss those. Hmm? Yeah, yeah, the one-pound note. The first one-pound coin came out 40 years ago in 1983. Really? It's been around that long, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, People yeah. do still fondly remember the one pound notes, though. Yeah, that's right, yes. And what about the big white uh, note you've got here? Well, because we're in 1949 in here, the note, largest note that we'd still have in circulation at that time is this white five pound note here. And it is indeed very, very large, and unfortunately, they were forged very easily. Because yeah. there's only they're only printed in black and white rather and they're only printed on one side that's easy to absolutely yes that's right okay they've got some, all sorts of things watermarks and things and holy ground there's all sorts of things on oh absolutely these days, haven't they thank you very much what's the oldest coin you got the oldest coin I've got is actually this 1908 one penny oh, okay. yeah, so that's got Queen right. Victoria's son on the back it's got King Edward the seventh excellent Okay, thank you very much. Thank you.
and Dave and Graham finish their visit to the Black Country Living Museum next week.